Festus in the house of Jacob and publish in, in Judah, saying, Hear now this, O foolish people, and without understanding, which have eyes and see not, which have ears and hear not. Fear ye not me, saith the Lord. Will ye not tremble at my presence, which have placed the sand for the bound of the sea, by a perpetual decree that it cannot pass it? And though the waves thereof toss themselves, yet can they not prevail. Though they roar, yet can they not pass over it. But this people hath a revolting and a rebellion heart, rebellious heart. They are revolted and gone. Neither say they in their heart, Let us now fear the Lord our God, that giveth rain. But the former and the latter in his season, he reserveth unto us the appointed weeks of the harvest. Your iniquities have turned away these things, and your sins have withholden good things from you. For among my people are found wicked men. They lay wait as he that setteth snares. They set a trap. They catch men. As a cage is full of birds, so are their houses full of deceit. Therefore they are become great and waxen rich. They are waxen fat. They shine. Yea, they overpass the deeds of the wicked. They judge not the cause, the cause of the fatherless. Yet they prosper. And the right of the needy do they not judge? Shall I not visit for these things? Saith the Lord, shall not my soul be avenged on such a nation as this? A wonderful and horrible thing is committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests bear rule by their means. And my people love to have it. So, at what will ye do in the end thereof? Good to see each of you this morning. Glad you could come out and be with us, especially if you're visiting. We're glad that you're here. And of course, we want you to come back at every opportunity that you do have. <clears throat> Considering the passage this morning, and we begin to think about the nation of Israel, Israel did not begin its existence in defiance to God. The nation didn't begin that way, but that is exactly how it ended up becoming. It became a nation who was in defiance of God. And it ended its relationship, ultimately, with the Almighty. Now, what we have to understand is that didn't happen overnight. It took the course of about 2,500 years for, nation to, uh, for Israel, the nation, to destroy the alliance that God had made with them. Now there is a path that will lead to destruction. I say a path because there are many paths that lead to destruction. While there is yet one path that will lead to eternal life. And Israel began on that path. Israel began on the path that leads or led to eternal life. But then slowly it began to 
deviate from the path. And it got on to the path that led to destruction. I want us to notice what Jesus said. He warned, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be that go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few be there that find it. There's only one way to get to heaven. There's only one choice we can make if we are going to find eternal bliss. Do you remember the popular advertising slogan, Have It Your Way? I think we probably remember that. That's our culture, isn't it? Our culture demands choice. I can remember growing up, we had a TV and it was black and white. I was the remote. We had three channels, one of which was snow. We had two choices, right? And you know, that seemed to work pretty good. Now, I'm not opposed to choice. I like having choices. I like to have things from which I can choose. But our culture demands that we have a choice in absolutely every single aspect of our lives. And that's just simply not what God wants or what He has demanded. The freedom to choose is precisely what we want in everything. You know, it has been said that there is one national coffee chain that can present your early morning cup of coffee in over 19,000 different ways. That's a little ridiculous, isn't it? That's just a little ridiculous. You know, some choices such as tall or grande or venti mocha, those choices are not necessary, are they? Those choices are things that in and of themselves aren't wrong, but they're insignificant, right? They're really insignificant. Whereas there are other choices that will impact our lives both in this world and in the next. The, uh, <clears throat> I want us to look at some Bible examples. The Bible is full of examples of people making choices. Some choices were the right choice. Some choices were the wrong choice. Some choices were extremely difficult to make, though they were the right choice. Now, the right choice isn't always the hardest choice, but sometimes it may be. I want us to notice an account in Genesis 24, verses 1 through 8. And we're not going to read this passage. We're going to talk a little bit about it. it we're want, we want to use it as a form of illustration. When Abraham was an old man, he called his servant to him. And he said, I want you to go back to my country, the one from where I came, and I want you to find a wife for my son Isaac. Well, the, the servant asked him, he said, uh, do you not want to pick a wife from here? He said, no, we're not going to pick a wife among the Canaanites. He said, well, what if I go back and I can't get the woman to come with me? Do you want me to take Isaac back there? And he said, no, no, I don't want you to take Isaac back there. That's the place from where God sent me. God took me from my father's house, brought me over to this land, which he said I'll give to you and your heirs. He said, do not take my son back there. If the woman will not come with you, then you're free from your bond. He made the, the, the servant swear to him. He made him agree to that. Now this account of Isaac and Rebekah is all about people who made choices from the top to the bottom. 
And some of those choices were very difficult choices. Wouldn't it have been infinitely easier for Abraham to have chosen a woman from amongst the people who he knew? Those among whom he lived? Well, of course it would have been. Consider the servant. He had been assigned a task of finding a matrimonial needle in a haystack. He was to go back to a land. If he had ever lived there, I guess he left that land with Abraham. It had been years since he had been in that land. He had to go all the way back. The people that he had known there had grown old. Some perhaps had died. He didn't really know who they were. And he's supposed to find a woman for Isaac who is back in uh, Palestine? Now that's a difficult task, isn't it? Then we have Rebecca. She was tasked with the burden to choose to leave her home, leave her family, leave everything that she knew and marry someone she had never even met who was all the way over in the land of Canaan. Well, we all make choices, don't we? We make choices every single day. Notice what Abraham did. Abraham chose to obey God. He chose not to pick a woman who was a heathen. He chose not to send his son back to where he came from. He chose to obey God in the way God asked him to obey him. The the servant, he chose to accept a very complicated challenge. He went, he performed the duty faithfully. And then we have Rebecca. She chose to leave her family. She chose to leave everything that was familiar to her and go all the way over and marry a man. She she chose to trust her life to a servant whom she believed. A servant whose God was the same God that she worshipped. And so those were hard choices. I think we look at this account, it's one of a divinely arranged marriage, but it's one made full of choices. And the right choices were made. When we look at this idea of trust and obey, trust and obey, it kind of fits together like coffee and cream, doesn't it? Yet, it's much more important. Coffee and cream is really insignificant. I like coffee. I prefer my coffee black. I put some cream in it from time to time to cool it down so I can drink it without having to sip on it. But that's really an insignificant choice, isn't it? Trust and obey is a very significant choice, sometimes a very difficult choice, but always the proper choice. It's always the right one. But how do we determine the right choice? On what do we base that? Well, we have to go to God's words, don't we? We're not talking about coffee and cream. We're talking about things that matter. We're talking about significant things in this life. How am I going to behave in this life? What am I going to do? Am I going to be pleasing to God? Is that my choice? Do I choose to have faith in Him? Do I choose to follow after Him? Or do I choose to follow after the world? Where do I go to find out? Obedience and guidance must be learned in God's Word. We have to go to what God says, not what some other person says. Are we going to have it our way? Or are we going to have it God's way? I think that's the question, isn't it? Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. A man sent by God to his people to beg for their repentance. God didn't want to destroy 
Israel. God didn't want to send them off into bondage to Assyria and Babylon and Syria and, and Rome and anyone else who came along who brought them in subjection to them. He wanted His people to return to Him. We look at Jeremiah's pleas and his tears and his, his heartfelt concern for Israel and it fills the pages of Jeremiah the book in Lamentations, the one he would later write. An example of a typical statement that can be found in these books, Jeremiah 2.32, Can a maid forget her ornaments? Or a bride her attire, yet my people have forgotten me days without number? Tell me the bride who has forgotten the day of her wedding. Tell me the bride who has forgotten what she was wearing that day. I bet she even knows the earrings that she wore and remembers those. But God's people, forgetting days without number. Very graphic is the statement that Jeremiah made, that God made. He said, for my people have committed two evils. He said, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water, Jeremiah 2.13. In that area, in that culture, in that time, they would dig out holes in the ground, they would carve out cisterns, and if there was a crack in the rock, it wouldn't hold water. It wasn't a good well. But he says, that's what my people are doing. They're, they're digging wells that won't hold water. Have you ever heard that term used? My dad used to say that all the time. I would say something that I thought was astounding. And he'd say, that just doesn't hold water. Wasn't right, was it? Was incorrect. People go to all the trouble of digging a well, and they had to use shovels. And they dig down, and, and they see a crack in it, and what do they do? They continue to try to collect water in it. Well, that's not going to work. It doesn't hold water. That's what God's people were doing. Now the obvious problem is what? They were making the wrong choices. They chose to be disobedient. That's why the prophet said this. He said, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. Now, are we going to listen to someone who digs out a hole in the ground and says, Use this for your well and it has a crack in the rock, and it won't hold water? Is that the person we want to direct our steps? Is that the person that we want to turn to and trust in His opinion and in His guidance? It simply doesn't hold water. And that's what God is talking about. Man's history is full of poor decisions made by leaders that are in direct contradiction to God's law. We were talking in class this morning. We were talking about uh, marriage and uh, different things like that. And the statement was made, well, marriage can be defined as a woman with a woman or a man with a man. Well, in our, in our civil government it can be, but not according to God's law. That doesn't hold water. The pattern of bad choices can be seen in our passage this morning. It was a pattern. It was one right after the other, but it doesn't just apply to Israel, the physical nation at that time. It applies to us. It better apply to us. We better be able to look at it. We better be able to read from God's Word and make some kind of a modern day application or it is 
of no use to us. It simply won't hold water. We're going to make an application this morning. In trying to bring His people back to Him, those people at that time and His people today, God made a declaration. I want us to look at that declaration. I want us to understand it. I want us to apply it today. To whom was God speaking? Sometimes we overlook that when we look at this passage. Was God speaking to those who needed to be rebuked? No, God was speaking to the faithful. He's sending them a message. He is encouraging the faithful to do something. He wanted them to deliver a message to those who were not faithful. But isn't that how it has to be? What happens when good men do nothing, when good women do nothing? Evil takes over, right? That's what happened. He's looking for those in this context who still had concern for the welfare of the nation. He wanted people to declare that these childish behaviors were going against what God wanted. He wanted for good men and women to stand up and say, Now wait a minute. Have you ever noticed, I watch the news, or I used to watch the news, I don't even watch the news anymore, it irritates me. But do you remember a while back, we had this sit-in on Wall Street. Okay, All these people went to Wall Street and they were uh, protesting. I'm not opposed to a good protest every once in a while if that's what someone wants to do. But do you know what was going on? Have you noticed usually who's doing the protesting? You know why they can protest? They don't have a job, right? They're not at work. I can't go on a protest. Sometimes I'd like to. I can't go on a protest. I have, I've got a job, right? My wife can't go on a protest. She's got a job. Y'all, I haven't seen any of you on the, on the news protesting. You've got jobs, okay? It's not wrong to protest, okay? That's not what I'm talking about. But we have a small minority of the people with a very loud voice, and they're out in the forefront, and they're protesting, and they're talking about gay marriage and and rights for homosexuals, and abortion, and things of that nature, and all of that. You know what? Good people don't have time to go protest. But good people better speak up. Do you know what happens when good people say nothing? Evil takes over. You cannot tell me that a majority of the people in our nation think that murdering an unborn child is okay. I don't believe that. But... We're busy in our own lives, working hard, trying to be moral, upstanding people, and we simply don't say anything. Brethren, that just doesn't hold water. We better make a right choice, right? So the faithful need to stand up. But what does it mean to be faithful anyway? Being faithful means making the right choice even when it's difficult. Making the right choice when it might cost me something. Making the right choice when no one else around me wants to make the right choice, even when the other one is easier. Notice what Paul commanded to Timothy. He said, Timothy, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come. What time, Paul? Well, those people that are listening, they're going to have itchy ears and they're going to want someone to scratch their itch and tell them what they want to hear because that's easier. 
It's easier to do that. It's easier not to stand up. It's easier not to be faithful. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and they shall be turned unto fables. That's what he warned Timothy. He said that's going to happen. What did Paul mean exactly by that statement? He said, stand by, be attentive, always speak the truth. It won't be easy always, but it'll always be right. And you'll always be faithful. The words of the gospel, that's by which we check our steps. That's our gauge. That's what Paul is saying. We need to defend that, right? I think it's a sad thing when elders and preachers and and faithful members of the Lord's church will not stand up for what is right and they allow someone else to come along and substitute God's words for their own. What happens when good people do nothing? Evil takes over. God is making a declaration to the faithful about the foolish. It's foolish. It's foolish when we disobey God. They are to rebuke the foolish. Why? So they can be brought back to their senses. That's what God's whole purpose was. Send Jeremiah, plead and cry and beg for repentance so they can be brought back to their senses. God said His people had eyes, yet they couldn't see. He said they had ears, but they couldn't hear. Now, could they not see? Were they really blind? Were they really deaf? No, they could see. They could hear. They chose not to see. They chose not to hear. They didn't want to see God's wisdom. And they didn't want to hear His commandments. They weren't interested. It was easier to go along just to get along, right? That's not what God says. Make the right choice. That just doesn't hold water. They didn't fear God. You know, Jeremiah talked about some of the things that they should have been able to look at in the, in the physical world. What about the sea? The sea has a barrier. We know it is the beach, right? He said the waves will... A toss around. The waves will come up onto the dry land sometimes. It's happening right now in, in Florida. But guess what's going to happen? They'll recede right back into the ocean. Why? They're not allowed to come further. God set that natural occurrence of events in order. The water will remain in the ocean bed. Yeah, it'll come up on the dry land sometimes. But it won't stay. It doesn't have the power to stay. If God can control the powers of nature... We look at this hurricane that's happening in the Atlantic, Irma. The most powerful hurricane to ever hit the Atlantic. If God can control that, what made these people think that they could fight against God? That they could disobey God? What makes people think today that they cannot fear God? Cannot have a reverential respect for Him? He uses the word me, God, addressing Himself to place emphasis on the very fact that they ought to have that reverential and godly fear of Him. Yet they did not. They didn't fear God. Why? Because He wasn't directly in their face all the time. Some of them were prospering, and they thought they did it by their own hand. Now Jeremiah had previously pointed out that the people through their own foolishness and their poor choices had brought upon themselves disaster. Jeremiah 4, 18 through 22. They brought it upon themselves. It wasn't anything that God said, well, I'm going to punish Israel today. No, God would bless Israel if they had been faithful. He also showed how their refusal of being corrected 
would affect them. It would bring about and had brought about punishments. Jeremiah 5 verse 3. They wouldn't listen. They had ears. They didn't want to hear. They didn't want to hear God's wisdom. They didn't want to hear God's commandments. They didn't want to see the way in which they ought to go. They were opposed to God. So he made a declaration. But now here's something. God made the declaration because of the elimination of Him from their lives. God will make a statement when we refuse to be obedient. Now that only happens when calloused hearts rebels against God. That's when God makes the declaration. Because of that elimination, even though they had all of these evidences of nature, because after, after all the things God had done in their not-so-distant past, they had eliminated Him from their lives. They were dull. They were destitute of understanding. God's trying to grab their attention. He's trying to get them back on track. They're not listening. When men decide to circumvent God's commandments, He'll ask a few questions. He's done it in the past. Notice Job 38 verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare it if you have understanding. He asked Job that, didn't he? You recall Job who was under the misunderstanding that God was punishing him for some reason. He didn't understand why. He knew he had been faithful. But he, in essence, accused God of being the source of his problems. And so God said, I'm going to ask you a few questions, Job. Where were you? when I created the world. And tell me all about it if you've got the understanding. How did I do that? He didn't have the understanding for that. He may ask this, Job 38 verse 8, in that continuing conversation, he said, Who shut up the sea with the doors when it break forth as if it had issued out of the womb? Job, how do I keep all that water in the seabed? Job, how do I keep the world from being completely flooded? Now that was going to come, but it hadn't under that point. If you understand all of that, Job, speak up. You know what Job's answer was? Silence. He didn't understand it. He couldn't speak up. Jeremiah's making the point again, if nature cannot rebel against God, what made his people think that they could rebel against God? He demonstrates His power to us today. He takes care of us through providence. It rains, it it snows, the sun shines, we have wind, we have the seasons, we, we produce fruit of the ground. God takes care of us. If God can control the, the natural forces of this world, what makes anyone today believe that they can rebel against God? It's the same in the spiritual realm. God has provided for us an opportunity to work in His vineyard. We need to do that, right? And we never need to have the idea that, well, I've done such a, such a great job and, and I've converted so many people and, and our congregation is a thousand people because of all that we've done. Who gives the increase? We're supposed to work. God has demanded it, but we don't give the increase. Paul said, So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. 1 Corinthians 3, 7. But people have a stubborn and willful behavior. People are not, will not allow themselves to bow beneath the, uh, 
the powerful hand of God. They don't want to submit to Him. And because of that very attitude, Israel made all the wrong choices. Israel was a rebellious nation. But they were rebellious because they were reprobate. The people brought about the withdrawal of God's blessings. They were reprobate. wasn't God. God didn't go anywhere. He didn't leave the people. They left Him. Jeremiah described the people as those who were wicked. Described his own people that way. He says they're wicked. They set snares. He used the illustration of, a, of someone who would catch a bird. Now those people who did that and were in that line of work at that time were known as fowlers. Fowlers. What they would do, they would take a cage, they would take a domesticated bird, sit it upon the cage, and they would trick the wild birds. The wild birds would see these domesticated ones and they thought everything was good, it wasn't what it appeared to be, and they would fly in and they would be ensnared in the cage. He said, you're wicked, you're like a fowler. You're like someone who, who lies and who presents something and it's not really what it ought to be. It's not really what you say it is. That same approach is used in the spiritual realm. What's the application? Well, Jeremiah pointed out, he said, men are good at presenting themselves as something they're not. Does that happen in the religious world? He says those people are not honest. They're not conscientious about God's desires. They're conscientious about their own desires. They don't care what God wants. Paul warned this. He said, In no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. We shouldn't be shocked, should we, when, when someone creates their own religion? We shouldn't be shocked when someone rewrites the Bible to fit a certain doctrine that they want to teach. We shouldn't be surprised by that. Why? Well, Satan presents himself as an angel of light. We can go all the way back to the first recorded interaction between Satan and people. The serpent presented himself and, and told Eve, Oh, look how beautiful that fruit is. I know you'd like to have it. Right? That's in essence what happened. And convinced her to do that. It's deceitful before God and man when people behave that way. We can't treat each other that way. We can't treat God that way. God said that He would give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, who did sin and who made Israel sin, 1 Kings 14 verse 6. What's that mean? That means the people who commit the sin are going to stand in judgment. But not only them, those who cause the sin to be committed will stand in judgment, Romans 1.32. And because of his declaration of that elimination of him from the mind of the people, God made a determination. What would he do? What had God determined that he would do? God will always avenge Himself. No one can get the upper hand on God. He would avenge His honor, His justice. He asked this question. He said, Shall I not punish them for these things? Shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? Of course He would punish the wicked. Of course He's going to avenge Himself. That's not a question of whether or not that's going to happen. What would make any group of people believe God wouldn't do that? 
Look at his history, right? Certainly God had, had never led them to believe that their wisdom was greater than his wisdom. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 1.18. He talks about how the, the, the wisdom of the world looks at God's wisdom and says it's foolishness. He's particularly talking about the plan of salvation in that context. He says the world says you can be saved however you want to be saved. What's God say? Well, let's look for just a moment before we end exactly what God does say about that. God says we're to believe on Jesus who He sent, John 8, 24. We're to believe. But it doesn't say belief only, does it? People look at John three sixteen, and, and I read that verse just yesterday, and I don't recall where I was. But it said, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth on Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Look at your Bibles. That's not what it says. Should not perish. doesn't say it's an impossibility. If we believe on Jesus, we should not perish. Why? Because if we believe, we'll be obedient. That's what Jeremiah is talking about, isn't it? Let's believe on Him. Let's be obedient. Then we should not perish. Repentance of past sins. Turning away from the sins of the world. Turning toward God. Acts 3.19 Confessing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He came out of the grave, He's sitting at the right hand of the Father right now, Romans 10, 9 and 10, being immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins, Acts 22.16. But we have to live a faithful life. We have to continue and be faithful. Or God will avenge Himself on us. When we believe that our wisdom is greater than God's wisdom, we're in trouble. It appears John, uh, Jeremiah was confused with this attitude. He called it astonishing. It's astonishing that someone would believe that. The leaders were appalling in their actions. We see how warped they were in their perceptions of what God would do and what He would not do. The indictment of verse 31 of our passage places the responsibility at the feet of the religious leaders. They were... They were lying. They were tricking the people. Notice again the phrase, what those phrases intend. He said, and the priests ruled by their own power. That can have various translations of what it means. Literally is upon their hand. They ruled by their own hand. Perhaps the prophets directed them. But at any rate, the priests didn't recognize any power above their own. And as sinful as that had become, the people loved it. They wanted more of it. Maybe the saddest question asked in this passage is, but what will you do in the end? There's always going to be a judgment rendered. Matthew 16, 27, For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He shall reward every man according to His works. In the context, Jeremiah wanted the people to repent. He's begging for that, but they refused. That's why an army from the north was going to come and was going to take them into captivity. They had rejected God, His counsel, and all of His wisdom. They weren't interested. The simple plea of God through Jeremiah was, Ask for the old paths. Where is the good way? And walk therein, and then you'll find rest for your souls. And their reply was, We will not walk therein. 
What will you do in the end? That was the challenge that Israel faced. But we face a similar challenge. What will we do in the end? Are we going to walk in the paths of God? Are we going to listen to men who pervert the things that God has asked us to do? We better walk in His paths, hadn't we? We need to obey Him. May we all determine today that we'll do that. What will we do in the end? Is what we're going to do, will it hold water or will it not? Is it a cistern that is cracked? If you have need to answer this Lord's invitation, maybe you've been contemplating what will I do in the end. Maybe you haven't obeyed the gospel. We talked about how to do that. We can do that today. Maybe you've stepped outside the light, you haven't been faithful, and, and you're wondering, what will I do in the end? All the begging in the world will not remove God's vengeance from us when this world comes to an end. If you have need to answer this Lord's invitation, do that as we stand and as we sing.